Hello and welcome to the Feminist Law Podcast. I'm your co-host, Courtney Jones, a recent law graduate and incoming postgraduate student in law. And I'm your co-host, Clara Tokul, a recent law graduate and incoming trainee solicitor. We're both co-founders of the Feminist Law Project and passionate about the intersections of law and feminism. Today on the podcast, we have Claire McGlynn, Professor of Law at Durham University. Could you please introduce yourself? Yes, good morning. I'm Claire McGlynn and I'm a Professor of Law at Durham University in the UK. Um, my work spans a range of uh, feminist and gender perspectives on law, uh, most recently around sexual violence and online abuse. Thank you for that introduction. Um, so before we focus on revenge porn, which is the main topic of today's interview, um, we we're wondering why you decided to specialise in the law surrounding pornography and sexual offences. So I guess, I mean, I've done a lot of work around um, gender in the legal profession and uh, gender in law around um, employment law. And the government, though, about, uh, well, it's now about 15 or so years ago, the UK government wanted to introduce some laws on pornography, on extreme pornography. And so this was just a big topic of public debate that I, I was quite interested in and got involved in. And um, the government were about to legislate and it wasn't in the way that I thought was going to be the right way to do it. So kind of just got involved from there. And so my interest and uh, in that area of law has just continued since then. That's fascinating. Thank you. Um, and for the purposes of today's episode, we'd like to focus on your 2017 article, so a while ago, sorry about that, um, titled Beyond Revenge Porn, The Continuum of an Image-Based Sexual Abuse. So before we delve into the topic, could you please explain to our listeners what revenge porn is um, and as well with image-based sexual abuse, please? So the term revenge porn um, traditionally refers to the kind of malicious ex-partner who uh, at the end of a break of a relationship maybe shares uh, intimate images online or with other people without uh, you know the, the person depicted consent. Um, the term revenge porn itself is deeply problematic because it is a kind of very victim blaming term. It suggests that that uh, victim has done something wrong, hence the, the revenge, if you like, uh, being taken um, against them. And it, it is the kind of term, and I've, I've spoken to, to victims, that it, it really actively hinders their recovery because many victims blame themselves anyway, as is quite familiar in, in cases of, of sexual violence. And so to kind of have this term used all the time um, is really problematic. It, it's also problematic because it's a very limited term. So it just refers to this, uh, you know, ex-partner, if you like, uh, sharing images without consent. So it doesn't refer to the whole wide range of ways in which intimate images are used and abused against victims. So this is why uh, my colleague, uh, Erica Rackley and I uh, developed the term image-based sexual abuse to try and uh, a term that better reflects victims' own perceptions, but also covers a much wider range of ways in which intimate images are, are used um, and, and abused really. So uh, we would define image-based sexual abuse as the taking or sharing or creating of intimate images without consent, including threats to share those images without consent, as well as um, making altered images, what might now be called um, deep fakes. 
yeah thank you for that clarification and I never actually heard of the the kind of stigmatization um on the victim regarding the terminology and the vocabulary um so I find that really fascinating and thank you for bringing that to our to our attention um so moving on from that um I'm wondering how did you reach the conclusion that revenge porn is a continuum rather than a concept with a clear and limited definition so what what we were trying to to do with um the concept of image-based sexual abuse is to bring together under that umbrella lots of different experiences that women and men have, predominantly uh, women. And um, so it covers, that phrase covers things like upskirting, so taking images up a woman's uh, skirt without her consent. It includes where images are hacked, say, from the internet and distributed without consent, as has happened to some, you know, well, lots of people, including many celebrities. Um, it includes down blousing, taking images down a woman's top. It includes recordings of sexual assaults. So there's a whole range of, of different types of activity. And I guess some have their own label, like say upskirting, but many others are always evolving. You know, there's always like a new way in which someone's image is taken or shared or reproduced without their consent. And there's just lots of overlaps. And that's what we mean by a continuum. So as well, many women experience this. So their images are taken without their consent and they might then be shared without their consent as well. So it's this is the, what we mean by a continuum. They experience lots of different um, uh, ways in which the images are, are used and abused. The, the continuum language comes from uh, the uh, pioneering academic Liz Kelly many years ago when she talked about a continuum of sexual violence. And, and what she means by that is women often through their lifetime will experience things like say sexual exposure or sexual harassment, maybe some sexual assault, street harassment. And for many women, the, the experiences just kind of merge into each other and overlap because it's a whole experience, life experience, if you, if you see what I mean about uh sexual violence and, and sexual harassment and so we just use that term and concept as well in the field around image-based abuse to try and also explain that there's lots of different ways this happens and for many women it's uh it's part of everyday life frankly and it it all you know merges into and, and links in with each other yeah 100 it sounds like it almost helps to validate these women's experiences and prevents them from being, you know, put into one umbrella term. Um, but it's more, you know, recognising that whatever these women experience actually is an issue, um, but it's also being recognised and it's not all just being put into one box, essentially. But that's right. And, and sometimes with these sorts of experiences, you see, is um, uh, women especially, you know, struggle to like, you know, there might not be a name for it. And, and a very good example of that is we are now familiar, many of us, with the term deep fake pornography, which is where, you know, um, technology um, AI is used to digitally alter pornographic videos to put someone else's face in it, if you like. But when this first started happening, we, we didn't have a term for it. We didn't have a word for it. And, you know, many women were, you know, struggling to 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 label it, to then understand what had happened to them and for it to be recognized. Um, so 
terms like hopefully image-based sexual abuse as well enables people to kind of understand what's going on and, and put a put a label to what's happening uh to them as well um in yeah instead of yeah struggling to have it recognize what's happened to them yeah i completely agree um and following on from that um you previously mentioned that you spoke to victims of um sexual abuse and revenge porn um so i'm wondering what trends have you observed in recent years regarding revenge porn um and would you say it's on the rise um and has it been curbed at all by legislation um including the online safety bill which is supposed to come into effect um in october of this year so in terms of the prevalence, I think it's really difficult to know how common lots of these forms of image-based sexual abuse are. Um, and that's because there's so many women who actually don't know, uh, and some men, that they've been victimized. If you think of forms of uh, abuse, such as um, voyeurism, you know, that filming women in toilets, filming women in hotel rooms, um, taking images up women's skirts in the underground, in the supermarket, L lots of these sort of, uh, women in intimate relationships, their partners are often taking images of them, videos of them that they don't know about. So it's really hard to know exactly how prevalent this is. Uh, what we do know over the last number of years is that incidents of taking and sharing images without consent have risen. Uh, that includes women reporting it to the police, self-reporting in surveys and such like. I guess as technology just becomes even easier to use, it's more accessible and during the pandemic. So it, in many ways, it is an epidemic. Um, there's thousands of websites dedicated to intimate image abuse, uh, deepfake pornography. Um, so that's, that's a, real, a real concern. You also asked about uh, legislation and how has that been dealing with it? Yeah, I, I think ironically, we're in a situation where we, we're seeing an increase in the image abuse and we're seeing more legislation being adopted in many countries. Um, no, that's not bringing down the amount of abuse at the moment. Uh, what it might be doing at the moment, I think, though, is it gives victims some validation that their experiences are being taken seriously and are recognised. It gives some victims the opportunity for redress so they can report to the police, or in many countries they can take civil actions. Um, that means going to court and either claiming compensation or getting material removed or taken down. So in time, ideally, it would lead to a, a reduction because laws hopefully change people's perceptions about um, how to live their lives and what's right and what's wrong. So hopefully in time, it will change attitudes. Uh, it, it's not yet leading to a reduction. Thank you for that explanation. Um, and in your article, you argue that the term revenge porn is, quote, at once too narrow and applied too widely, end quote. Um, so how do you suggest that we adapt our use of the term um, so that it becomes more effective and it reflects the reality of victims of revenge porn more accurately? So I think ideally what I'd like to see is nobody ever using the term revenge porn again, <laughs> uh, basically. Um, and it is possible that is something we could see. So, for example, in Australia, the term image-based abuse is used. And when I say it's used, I, I mean... Uh, media, politicians, organisations, um, you know, it, it, it really is a common term. And we've seen this in Ireland as well recently. Ireland 
changed its legislation a couple of years ago, quite comprehensive legislation in this area. And again, the media, politicians, you know, organizations are all using terms like image-based sexual abuse or intimate image abuse. So it really is possible to change our language. You can also see this uh, in an area around uh, forms of pornography. So people used to talk about, uh, quotes, child pornography, quotes. Such a term is very rarely used now. People talk about child sexual abuse images because that's what it is. So it is possible to change our, our language and terminology. So my hope is we stop just using the term revenge porn. It's victim blaming. And it's also why our laws are so limited because many of the criminal laws are based on that idea of a malicious ex-partner sharing, sharing images uh, to cause harm. Um, so the very use of that term has limited the laws applicable uh, to victims. So, for example, in many countries, many states in the US, in English law, uh, Scots law and many other countries, you have to prove that the person sharing these images was doing it to cause distress. What that means is that when you've got groups of men on websites taking and sharing images amongst themselves, that's not covered because they don't even want those victims to know about it. So that's why the language, I think, revenge porn is so problematic. Um, and ideally, we would uh, get rid of it and start using terms like image-based sexual abuse or intimate image abuse or image-based abuse. You know, There's all sorts of other ways we could express this. Yeah, I completely agree with you. It's definitely a very limited, limitative term um, and very victim blaming, as you've said. Um, and I've seen myself, um, even when reading academic articles, the language has started to shift that way. Um, and more and more academics are using the term image based sexual abuse, um, which is reassuring um, on, along the vein of what you've been saying. Um, so going back to the online safety bill, um, it's currently going through Parliament to the House of Lords stage. That's regarding um, the law in England and Wales. So does it contain effective provisions regarding revenge porn? And do you anticipate that if the bill is passed in October, will it help to tackle revenge porn? So the online safety bill, as you say, is a measure going through the UK Parliament at the moment. Its, it's aim is to try and make the internet a, uh, quote, quote, safer place for, for, for everyone. Um, it has real potential. You know, we really do need to regulate the online space. And there are some measures in that bill which will hopefully uh, improve the situation. I'm being rather hesitant because it, it you know, it, it's not as strong as it could be. Um, and even once the legislation is adopted, the key factor is going to be uh, how it's enforced. It's a massive bill that covers all sorts of areas from, you know, videos of animal cruelty to end-to-end -to -end encryption to, you know, uh, children, you know, and, and suicide uh, images, uh, women and girls. It's, it's absolutely massive. So there's a huge uh, role for regulators and we'll have to just see how, how that goes. In relation to intimate image abuse and image-based sexual abuse, there will be some obligations on the large platforms, the, social, the main social media platforms, for example, to be more proactive in seeking out uh, harmful abusive material and removing it. So there is, we just don't quite yet know how effective that's going to be, to be honest. But 
it should mean that they're taking more steps. There is some new criminal law as well in the bill and around intimate image abuse, it's going to introduce a revised law, which will mean that uh, there's no requirement to prove motivations of a perpetrator sharing intimate images without consent. And that's a really positive step forward. I really welcome that piece of legal change, but it's still only part of the picture. We're still going to be left in this area with a kind of patchwork of confused and piecemeal legislation. The laws on taking images, for example, without consent, are still going to require proof of various motivations. So it's a real, it is a step forward. There's going to be anonymity for victims reporting for the very first time um, as well. And so I'm hopeful things are, are going in the right direction. They're just not as comprehensive as would be preferable. And we wait to see how effective the legislation is going to be, largely in terms of how effective is the regulator going to be about ensuring the large platforms are taking the action required of them. Yeah, 100%. Thank you for that clarification. And let's hope indeed that the bill um, is useful in curbing um, image-based sexual abuse. Um, so aside from the online safety bill and um, a change in terminology and vocabulary that you have uh, suggested and spoken about already, what other solutions do you suggest to curb image-based sexual abuse and why? So one of the the areas that um, I and others are, are advocating for at the moment is to introduce in the UK context um, some more civil remedies uh, for uh, victims of image-based sexual abuse. So what I mean here is that we, we do, well, the criminal law does still need reform um, and the criminal law needs to be comprehensive. But alongside changes to the criminal law, I'd like to see more changes to the civil law so that a victim, for example, can go to court and get an order for Google to de-index their images, for example, to make them do that, to get platforms, whether it's Google, uh, Meta, you know, whoever, to remove their images if they haven't already done so. Uh, because sometimes with these platforms, it's really difficult to get them to take the material down. To get an order for that perpetrator to delete images, because at the moment, you know, they don't have to. And these are our civil options that I think should be available to victims. Now, there are some sort of orders they can get at the moment, but it's not very clear which ones and applying in which context, etc. So... What I think would be really helpful is legislation setting out exactly what you can apply for and when the courts can issue those orders. And I would see that separate from criminal proceedings. You can do both, but you don't have to report to the, uh, the police in order to get these orders. Now, this is what's happening in a number of other countries. Uh, in British Columbia and Canada, for example, there are some of those or orders and in other contexts um, and other countries as well. So that's what I'd really like to see um, happening next so that victims can have that range of options really in front of them um, to take action. Other things that are really needed is in the UK, there's what's called the Revenge Porn Helpline which provides services to get material taken down from the internet. Uh, it, it's a charity. It does get some funding from the government, but not enough in reality. Um, 
and they need to be more sustainably funding and gr given greater funding so that they really can help and respond to individuals to get material very swiftly taken down because they're a very effective organization but they do need more resources uh, to be able to to do that so that would be that would be my my approach i would have a comprehensive criminal law i would have comprehensive civil law remedies and i would like greater support for victims i'd like a one-stop shop basically that a victim can go to and get references for counselling and support for counselling, can get some initial legal advice about the options available to them and can get material swiftly taken down. Um, that would be the ideal. Yeah, thank you for that overview. And that's, that's indeed, as you said, a very comprehensive, I suppose, kind of package um, for the victim to have, um, you know, the option to go through different ways, but not necessarily only the criminal um, criminal way um, which can be more um, overwhelming and you know a bit longer um, and onerous in some cases. Um, so now if any of our listeners are worried about revenge porn whether they've experienced it um, or know someone who has what steps do you recommend that they take? So uh, I've, I've just mentioned the revenge porn helpline actually and that would be um, a first place to go there there is a website there's a phone line um, they can provide advice on how to get material taken down from the internet. They can also talk to someone about their other options. So for example, does someone want to report to the police, for example? If someone's in immediate uh, uh, worrying about the harm, say they're being stalked, they might be in a domestic abuse situation, images are being shared or threatened to be shared without their consent, they can go obviously to the police to try and um, get immediate action taken if they're they're fearing for their their personal safety. Um, there is also uh, women's aid and refuge run helplines, and refuge have a a specific um, helpline for those who are experiencing some forms of domestic abuse using technology, and that can you know so sometimes that can mean things like tracker devices, uh, you know, trackers in phones and stuff, but it can also mean um, image-based sexual abuse. So again, they have uh, helplines uh, that, that are available for, for people to, to use. If someone feels able to, sharing and talking with, you know, a, a close friend, a confidant, a family member, uh, a trusted teacher, someone like that as well, uh, to share uh, the burden of what's what they're going through um, and to know that they're not alone and you know unfortunately as I've said this is an incredibly common experience um, someone might think that they're one of the few or the only person going through this but they're not um, so to reach out as well would be uh, if they can a, a really good first step to try and um, take action to to help themselves and maybe to get images removed or, or taken down. Yeah, thank you for um, for the advice and for those resources. And we'll make sure to put links um, in the show notes to those charities that you've mentioned. Um, and finally, if our listeners would like to learn more about your work and research and revenge porn more generally, um, where could they do so, please? So uh, the Revenge Porn Helpline itself has some resources on, on its website about uh, uh, material and about um, uh, you know it's all about as well some of us for privacy settings and and 
sorting out things. I mean, you know, it's even things like, uh, you know, we have on our mobile phones, the names sometimes on your phone, it comes up with your name. Do you want your name on your mobile phone? You know, mine has changed to CM so that if someone's searching airdrop or they're on, a, on public transport in a cafe, they don't see my name and they can't then use that or, or call that out and they don't know who, who is the woman. Anyway, that, that's just another example of, of changing some of our privacy settings. We shouldn't have to, to protect ourselves from street harassment and online abuse, but sometimes it's a, a positive step that, that we can take to try and reduce, reduce um, our, our risks. In terms of um, academic work, some of the work you, you talked about today, I've done with colleagues Ruth Houghton and Erica Rackley. Some of that is available uh, on my website, which is um, clairemcglynn.com, um, if they want to read more academic work. Also on that website, there's some policy briefings as well. Um, and then other organizations like Glitch, which uh, works to end online abuse and particularly works around the experiences of black and minoritized women who have a far higher risk of online abuse. Um, they have a lot of resources as well about, uh, you know, how to improve everyone's online experience in a positive way and um, educative materials to try and, you know, change people's behaviors because ultimately that's, that's the best way to try and improve the online experience for all of us. Yes, indeed. Thank you very much for sharing all of this. And thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. No, thank you very much. In today's Feminist News Roundup, Lena Jagowicz, and I'll point you to the US government's disinformation board and author of How to Be a Woman Online and How to Lose the Information War is calling on governments around the world to tackle the fake pornography, an issue in which 100% of victims are women. Also in today's News Roundup, members of the European Parliament are calling on member states to implement measures to decrease the demand for prostitution. In a press release, the European Parliament acknowledged that, quote, people in prostitution face the constant threat of police and judicial persecution and are marginalized and stigmatized, end quote, and encourages the EU to develop guidelines guaranteeing the fundamental rights for people in prostitution. Meanwhile, in the UK, actor and comedian Russell Brand has been accused of sexual assault and rape, the youngest victim being 16 at the alleged time of the incident, and all of the incidents are said to have occurred between 2006 and 2013. Also in the UK, the BBC reports that an analysis of NHS staff have found that female surgeons are harassed, sexually assaulted, and in some cases raped by their colleagues. According to the BBC, the authors of the study say a pattern has been found of senior male surgeons abusing female trainees. Finally, a Yale student's accusation of rape against another student has led her to be exposed to a defamation lawsuit after a disciplinary hearing at the university led to the accused being expelled, but a criminal trial led to the accused's acquittal. If you have any suggestions for this podcast, let us know directly via email at contact at feministlaw.org. Please also visit our website at feministlaw.org and follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn to keep up to date with our latest articles, podcasts, newsletters, and exciting news. The music for this podcast was sourced from pixabay.com. Thanks for listening.